The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, so in this edition of Pilgrim's Progress, we're going to be looking, I just looked it up from pages 24 to 34, um, but we're going to be uh, covering the section in which Christian <clears throat> uh, goes up to and through the wicket gate and then goes to interpreter's house, and that'll give us plenty to talk about. Um, but uh, just by way of, again, general introduction, Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan, who was effectively a blue-collar worker. He was not trained theologically, but it was a genius uh, for uh, preaching and teaching, uh, speaking in a very powerful way. It had just a genius for words. Um, and he just had a tremendous clear insight of doctrine. Um, and he was in prison for preaching without a license. This was toward the very end of English persecution of, of sects and religions, uh, basically at the end of Bunyan's life, not because of his life, but marking the time basically from 1700 on, there was just religious toleration in England, not religious freedom. There were definite advantages for being part of the Anglican church. Um, it wasn't separation of church and state like we have here, but there wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a criminal to belong to a sect. Uh, it wasn't criminal to belong to a sect. At any rate, he wrote this as an allegory. That's a, uh, a symbolic story of the Christian life, and it gives us a picture of the journey that the Christian life entails, that um, the moment of conversion is by no means the end of our, of our salvation. It's by no means the end of the story. And it's amazing, we were, Doug and I were just talking, how few churches really seem to grasp in a very robust way the importance of sanctification, of making, uh, of growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ, of making progress in all areas of your Christian life and how that's actually part of your salvation. But the Puritans as a movement understood it better than any other movement. They really wrote well about it. And this is that story of, of a journey from being converted to dying, to going to heaven, uh, that Christian life in a very picturesque sort of way. It's a picture or kind of a roadmap of what it looks like. And so we're going to continue. I'll give you a little bit of review. And I welcome interruptions. I welcome, well, of certain types. You know, there's some, some I welcome more than others. But if you have questions or comments, I'd love that. I don't want to just be up here talking the whole time. That would really bother me. Um, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and review and then definitely jump in uh, when I ask the discussion questions, if not before. All right, so we've already seen one stage. By the way, in your book, you're not going to see chapters or stages laid out. This is, uh, you know, a construct that interpreters like me have put on it. So you're kind of dividing it into, into like 10 sections, but you won't see that. It's not chapters in the book. Um, but anyway, uh, the whole thing begins. Uh, at the very start, Bunyan uh, presents the allegory as something he dreamed. All right. Now, it's not true that he dreamed it, but it's presented that way. He lay down in a den, his prison, and he had time to write, and he um, dreamed. And so the thing is couched in, in kind of a dream way, and so it, it gives... Uh, uh, sets up that allegorical kind of interpretive uh, sort of thing. Um, and so it focuses on an individual. Uh, we don't know his name at this point. Uh, later on, much later on in the story, you find out that his name pre-conversion is graceless. Graceless. So he has not yet received the grace of God in Christ. Um, but as soon as then he begins the journey, uh, his name is given as Christian. All right. Anyway, so this individual is reading a book, and as he reads it, he's groaning, he's lamenting, he's in deep distress because of what he's reading in the book. And he finds out, uh, also we notice that he has a terrible, uh, heavy burden on his back, and he finds out from the book that he lives in the city of destruction. And he finds out from the book that the city he lives in is someday, he doesn't know when, going to be completely destroyed. And if that he doesn't uh, be rescued from the city of destruction, he'll be swept away with it. And he has no way how he can be rescued. And so he's lamenting and groaning. And he's got this terrible, heavy burden on his back as well. He communicates these things to his wife and his children. And they uh, uh, are amazed at what he said, not because they believed him, but because they thought he was crazy. <clears throat> so they try to get him to bed. They try to take care of him. Then after a while, as it persists over days, 
Um, they start to be rude to him, to be mean to him uh, or ignore him. And so at that point, then he, he's walking in fields and praying and groaning and reading. And he just doesn't have any way out. Uh, he's struggling. So then along comes an individual called Evangelist. One of the things about Pilgrim's Progress is the allegory is really clearly established by the names of individuals in the book. So you're going to have evangelist or formalist, hypocrisy, pliable, obstinate, all these characters, Mr. Facing Both Ways. I mean, you've got all these interesting names. You know exactly what Bunyan thinks about them before you even get to know them just from the name. Um, but evangelist comes up and starts talking to him and just gives a beautiful picture of personal evangelism, of one-on-one -on -one interactions that, that individuals have with those that are struggling, that are lost. And he... Um, points, uh, evangelist points Christian to, or graceless at that point, to uh, a wicked gate. Um, so some kind of a, a, a gate, uh, but he can't see it. All right. And so then he points him to a, a distant light and he kind of sees that. And so again, that shows that, that uh, progressive revelation that happens when someone's being converted. It's not all at once. It's, it's not like suddenly the first time they heard of Jesus dying on the cross, they believe. I'm not saying that's impossible, but generally it's a progress, a work in progress. So at any rate, he knows what he needs to do now, and he starts running across the field for the distant light. His wife and children see him running, and they go after him to try to get him back, and they're crying out, but he puts his fingers in his ears. He's crying out, life, life, eternal life. He will not look back. He's going. In the course of time, two neighbors come along, and they are coming basically for the same purpose, to persuade him to come back. And their names are pliable and obstinate. Okay, pliable means flexible like a gumby, and obstinate is the opposite, all right? And they're trying to persuade him to come, and Christian tells them why he's distressed, why he's journeying. Uh, obstinate has, isn't buying it at all. He thinks none of it's true. And he's just saying, are you going to come back or not? Pliable listens to Christian talk about the positive aspects of heaven, and he's interested in that, and he thinks he'd like to go there. Heaven sounds good, so I'll, I'll, try, I'll give it a shot. Travel with you. So obstinate goes back, Christian pliable go on until they fall into a swamp, a slough called despond or depression. And so this represents uh, some murky depressions that can come over individuals as they're seeking salvation. And so they uh, have trouble in that, but uh, Christian has far more trouble than Pliable does because Pliable has no weight on his back. All right, The weight seems to represent a feeling or sense of guilt for sin. You're under conviction for sin and it's weighing him down. But Pliable has no negative aspects here at all. He's just excited about heaven, has no conviction of sin, no fear of being in the city of destruction. He just thinks he'd like a good time and like to go. But now that he's in the slew of despond, he wants nothing to do with the whole thing. Makes an effort, gets up out and goes back home. He's done. We don't see him again. All right, so that's, but meanwhile, Christian's in this swamp and uh, an individual named Help comes along and reaches down and helps him up out and they talk about the slew of despond, why it's still there, uh, and, and he continues on his way. After um, a little while, um, Christian meets an individual called Mr. Worldly Wise Man and Mr. Worldly Wise Man sees him laboring with his uh, weight on his back. He also has heard about Christian going out from the city of destruction, and so he's out there to help him. Um, and he's going to help him by giving him advice on how he can get rid of the weight off his back. All he needs to do is go off the path and go travel over to a town called Morality, where he's going to meet an individual called Legality, who is an expert at helping people off with their weights. So it sounds good to Christian, and he turns off and starts heading toward the town of Morality. And as he travels, the road gets steeper and steeper until it almost seems like it's going to double back. It becomes this massive hill that feels like it's going to topple on him. Meanwhile, also, fire is coming out of it, represents Mount Sinai, and it can't be can't be scaled. It's just too steep. And he thinks it's going to fall over on him and crush him, and he's just standing there, and he doesn't know what to do. And so along comes Evangelist, and Evangelist is not pleased with his pseudo-disciple at this point, said, how did you get here? And they have, he rebukes him severely, and he tells him that this individual is known for enticing people off the true path. Now, just pause for a moment. What Bunyan is talking about here is what? What is morality and legality and all that? What is that representing? Salvation by works, by self-effort. And that if you become a moral person and you reform yourself, you won't feel guilty anymore for your sins. You'll feel like you're doing well, and that's a good way to live. 
But we know from the book of Galatians and many other places that that is impossible. The law cannot save. All it can do is crush you. All it can do is condemn you. Anyway, uh, evangelist rebukes him and sets him back on his path. So that's all the uh, review from last time. So let's uh, begin. And we're going to be looking basically at two things tonight, the wicked gate um, and interpreter's house. Uh, The wicked gate, Christian approaches it and knocks on it, knocks on the door. Um, So I'm going to read. In the process of time, Christian got up to the gate. Now over the gate was written, knock and it shall be open unto you. Uh, And then he writes this poem. He that will enter in must first without stand knocking at the gate, nor need he doubt that there that is a knocker but to enter in. For God can love him and forgive his sin. Bunyan does a lot of these little poems in the middle of it. So he's just saying, if you want to be saved, you've got to knock at the door. You know, um, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open unto you. So he knocked, therefore, more than once or twice, saying, May I now enter here? Will he within open to sorry me, though I have been an undeserving rebel? Then shall I not fail to sing his lasting praise on high. Don't you wish you could just spin off poems like that right in the middle of your day? I mean, that would be kind of cool, or people would think you're like super weird. At any rate, he's saying, will they open to me? You know, I'm a sinner. I have no hope. I'm broken, but I'm here knocking, and maybe they'll open. So that's what happened. Now, the gatekeeper uh, is there. His name is Goodwill, and he questions Christians a little and then gladly opens the gate. Uh, Goodwill says, basically, our job is to open to anybody who comes and knocks. There's no, we don't keep anyone out. If somebody comes and knocks, the door is going to be open. Uh, and again, this is just reflective of, of what Christ taught. Knock and the door will be open to you. But then, just as the door is open, Goodwill takes hold of Christian and gives him a yank or a pull to get him in quickly. And then you get the sense that the door is immediately slammed behind them. Uh, with perhaps even some arrows in it, like, like it's uh, one of those old westerns, and the guy's just in the fort in the nick of time. Uh, then said Christian, what means this or that? The other told him, a little distance from this gate, there is erected a strong castle, of which Beelzebub is the captain. From thence, both he and them that are with him shoot arrows at those that come up to this gate, if haply they may die before they can enter in. Then said Christian, I rejoice and tremble. Now, Charles Spurgeon wrote a a kind of a devotional commentary on Pilgrim's Progress, and he stops to talk about Beelzebub's castle and the arrows. He has a whole chapter on on this. So let me just pause and ask some discussion questions. This is the, you know, a chance to interpret some of the symbols here. What do you think these arrows shot by Satan at someone just about to be converted represent in real life? Yeah. Yeah. Anything that, that he would do to get you to turn away. Now, what Bunyan writes here is that he wants uh, you to die at the gate. Um, so, any other thoughts on this? He wants to work despair inside people, feeling like I'm too sinful, I could never be forgiven, or I've committed the unpardonable sin, or I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, something like that, or any of those overwhelming feelings that, that you feel I could never be forgiven. Anyway, I think that's, uh, that's a powerful image, and so he pulls him in. Another interesting feature of Pilgrim's Progress is you're never really, like, totally sure exactly when Christian is converted. Is he converted when he first sees the light at the, in the distance? Is he converted when he comes in through the wicked gate but still has the burden on his back? I would think he's converted by the time he stands before the cross and the burden rolls off his back. But I think it's just one of those interesting aspects of Puritanism that conversion's a work. It, it doesn't happen all in an instant, and there can be different times in which you come to different understandings. Now, we know from the heavenly perspective, there is an instant where uh, before you were dead spiritually, and now you're alive, but I'm saying coming around from the human perspective, it's hard to know exactly when that is. All right, let's continue. Goodwill then, as Christian is brought in, starts to question Christian about why he came alone. Why did you come alone? Uh, How is it that you came alone, said Goodwill? Christian, because none of my neighbors saw their danger as I saw mine. Goodwill, did any of them know of your coming? Yes, said Christian. My wife and children saw me at the first and called after me to turn again. Also, some of my neighbors stood crying and calling after me to return, but I put my fingers in my ears and so came on my way. Goodwill, but did none of them follow you to persuade you to go back? 
Yes, said Christian, both obstinate and pliable. But when they saw that they could not prevail, obstinate went railing back, but pliable came with me a little way. Goodwill. But why did he not come through? Christian. We indeed both came, came both together until we came at the slough of despond into the which we also suddenly fell. And then was my neighbor pliable, discouraged, and would not venture further. Wherefore, getting out again on that side next to his own house, he told me that I should possess the brave country alone for him. And so he went on his way, and I came mine. He after obstinate, and I to this gate. Goodwill. Then said Goodwill, Alas, poor man, is the celestial glory of so small esteem with him that he counteth it not worth running the hazards of a few difficulties to obtain it. Let's stop and ask some questions. How does this interaction show the responsibility all Christians have to persuade people around them to come with them to heaven? Second question like it is, how does it give us a foretaste of the accountability we'll have on Judgment Day for people we knew? Okay, so we need to obviously have tremendous concern for the people around us that are Christians. We want to encourage one another in the local church. What about lost people, lost relatives, lost co-workers, neighbors, people that, you know, any thoughts on that? The responsibility we have for them. Yeah, so you're just describing exactly pliable. He's like, he tried it for a while, and as soon as it was difficult, he gave up. People do that. But goodwill ask Christian what question as they begin talking. What's the first question he asked? Yeah, yeah. How, how is it you came alone? Did anybody know? So how does that give you a sense of accountability in terms of evangelism? Yeah, I, I often have thought a lot about what I call a difficult judgment day. And just giving Jesus answers for various questions he'll ask is going to be hard. And I, I categorize them in internal, external journey questions. So external journey has to do with other people, evangelism and missions. So do you think if you had an unsaved brother, do you think the Lord Jesus will ask you about him on judgment day? If you had an unsaved biological brother, did you ever talk to him? What did you do to try to reach him? I actually can well imagine that kind of question. Or an unsaved mother or father, an unsaved, you know. And then, and in concentric circles, because our responsibility is in terms of providential closeness. You know, people that we knew well, that we interacted with, that kind of thing. Yeah, just to give an account. And again, we're not going to be kept out of heaven because we weren't as evangelistic as we should have been. That's not the case, but we're going to have to give an answer. And if the Lord said, look, I committed some people to you, people that you could pray for, people you could share with. To me, this, this is very convicting, this questioning. And it's not the last time it'll happen in, in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, the fact that I'm going to have to give an account for these relationships makes me want to be faithful, makes me want to share with people and, and make sure that they at least know the way of salvation through me. All right, let's keep going. Goodwill tells Christian that the road ahead is perfectly straight. I will teach thee about the way that thou must go. Look before thee, dost thou see the narrow, this narrow way? That is the way thou must go. It was cast up by the patriarchs, prophets, Christ, and his apostles, and it is as straight as a rule can make it. This is the way thou must go. But, said Christian, are there no turnings or windings by which a stranger may lose his way? Goodwill, yes, there are many ways, but down upon this, and they, and they are crooked and wide. That means alongside it. But thus thou mayest distinguish the right from the wrong, the right only being straight and narrow. So that's just going to be a rule for the rest of the book. Don't leave the path. All right? And, and that's just a lesson for us. Any diversion from what Jesus describes as the straight and narrow road is going to bring you into trouble. Now, they're going to have the biggest trouble with it later when they end up in um, Doubting Castle and when they go by Bypath Meadow and they come al alongside for a while and it's a little more comfortable, you know, some grass and it's not so rocky and steep, but it slowly digresses from the real road. So right from the beginning, uh, Goodwill says, I'm going to show you the way and it's as straight as a ruler can make it. So just stay that way. All right. All right. Now we're coming to um, the interpreter's house. Now, interpreter uh, is going to show uh, Christian things that will be helpful for his pilgrimage. And there are seven vignettes and they'll occupy the rest of our time. They do an amazing job of giving key pictures that teach us important things about the Christian life. Now, interpreter himself, who is he? Who does he represent? 
hard to say. It could be a pastor like me that uses pictures or illustrations or parables to teach spiritual things, something like that. Interpreter's House is somewhat like a spiritual Smithsonian Museum or something like that, where you're walking through and seeing different things acted out, or maybe like a not a haunted house, but almost like that, you know, something at the carnival. But as you're going from place to place, there are little things being acted out. Does that make sense? And there's seven of them, so let's walk through them. Let's look at the first. And the first, I, and I gave these titles. These titles are not in the book, but they line up with what happens. The first I call the spiritual guide. Uh, then said the interpreter, come in, I will show you that which will be profitable to thee. So he commanded his man to light the candle and bid Christian follow him. So he had him into a private room and bid his man open a door. The which when he had done, Christian saw the picture of a very grave person hang up against the wall. And this was the fashion of it. It had eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips. The world was behind his back. It stood as if it pleaded with men and a crown of gold did hang over his head. Then said Christian, what meaneth this? Interpreter, the man whose picture this is, is one of a thousand. He can beget children, 1 Corinthians 4, 15. That passage is where Paul says, though you have many guides or counselors in Christ, you only have one father, for through the gospel I gave birth to you. Effectively, I became your father. All right, and he can travail in birth with children, as he said in Galatians 4, 19, uh, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He uses that kind of language. And he can nurse them himself when they are born. And whereas thou seest him with his eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand and the law of truth writ upon his lips, it is to show thee that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. Even as thou also seest him stand as if he pleaded with men, and whereas thou seest the world as cast behind him, and that a crown hangs over his head, that is to show thee that, that slighting and despising the things that are present, for the love he hath to his master's service, he is sure in the world that comes next to have glory for his reward. Now, said the interpreter, I have showed thee this picture first, because the man whose picture this is, is the only man whom the Lord of the place whither thou art going hath authorized to be thy guide in all difficult places thou mayest meet with in the way. Wherefore, take good heed to what I have showed thee, and bear well in thy mind what thou hast seen, lest in thy journey thou meet with some that pretend to lead thee right, but their way goes down to death. So again, I call this a spiritual guide because that's what interpreter says. This is the only one who's qualified to guide you in your journey. So let's talk about it. Who does this represent in the Christian life? Remember, this is all, these are all vignettes that give spiritual truth. Who would you say this represents? Okay, maybe your own evangelist, somebody who led you to Christ. Okay, good. He uses guide language. So what does that imply? That this guy is there for what purpose? Think about the whole allegory here. Show you the way. He's going to kind of walk with you, on, uh, you know, and show you how to make progress to the celestial city. Okay, the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. So tell me more about that, that the Spirit's there to guide as your counselor. Good, good. Um, one possibility um, is that this is the Puritan vision of a pastor and that this is what you're looking for in a pastor. You want this kind of individual. Look at some of the things. He has the, the word of God on his lips. It is his job to unfold dark or difficult things doctrinally or scripturally. His purpose is to guide you along your way. And so whether it's other things as well, at least this much you would like to see an individual who's a pastor meet these criteria. Now, of course, for me as a pastor, when I read the descriptions of this individual, it's pretty daunting. I mean, what are some of the aspects? How would you put these things? What kind of individual should you be seeking for as a spiritual guide or a pastor based on this portrait? He's committed to the word. He has the law of God on his lips. He knows God's word. Okay, he can adjust you, correct you. All right. He's a grave person. So what does that mean? I know we don't use that word very much, you know, in that way. But what does that mean if somebody's grave? They're serious about life. Um, they've got a serious outlook on life. What is his view of the present world and the world to come? Doesn't care about it. He's not attracted to it. He's put the world behind. What does he think about? He's, he's heavenly minded. 
He's got a crown waiting for him. He doesn't have it yet, but it's going to come when he finishes his work, etc. So now, how can you read that list without being overwhelmed? You know, you want to be able to find someone like this, but you're never going to find a perfect, you know, a perfect person who could be this. So how would, how would we look at this and say, this is who I'm looking for, but I'm willing to accept someone who's a work in progress, because if you're not, good luck to you in terms of finding somebody who is this way. But how, do you, how would we harmonize this? Yeah, I mean, I think as I read this, it's hard for me not to think about the Apostle Paul. I think that's how he lived his life. I think he unfolded dark things from God's Word. I mean, he, even, you know, he wrote them, Book of Romans, things like that. He definitely was uh, heavenly-minded. Um, he... Uh, was serious. Uh, he, you know, was able. You know, a lot of the descriptions come right from Paul's description of himself, uh, where he's able to beget children and nurse them and care for them, etc. So, all right, let's move on. Uh, vignette number two. Yeah, go ahead. Check at the back of the book for the answers. You know, that's the thing. You're never sure. Like, like the interpretive key could very well be. And I, you know, I appreciate, um, you know, also what you said about the role of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. At the end, when interpreter's done, he say, "May the counselor guide you in all your ways." So he—that's clearly referring to the Holy Spirit there. So very good. Let's go on to the second vignette, the dusty room. Then he, interpreter, took him by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust, because never swept. The which, after he had reviewed a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now, when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian had almost therewith been choked. Then said the interpreter to a damsel that stood by, bring hither the water and sprinkle the room. The witch, when she had done, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. I love that phrase. Swept and cleansed with pleasure. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, the parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law, but she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now, whereas thou sawest that so soon as the first began to sweep, the dust did so fly about that the room by him could not be cleansed. But thou, thou wast almost choked therewith. This is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, doth revive, put strength into, and increase it in the soul, even as it doth discover and forbid it, for it doth not give power to subdue. In other words, just like Romans 7 says, the law actually tends to stimulate sin, and teach you what sin is, but it cannot subdue it. All it does is, is, in the end, it increases sin. Again, as thou sawest the damsel sprinkle the room with water, upon which it was cleansed with pleasure, this is to show thee that when the gospel comes in, uh, the sweet and precious influences thereof to the heart, then I say, even as thou sawest the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the soul made clean through the faith of it, and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. Now, I just want to say, if you're ever in a campground with a wooden cabin and you have just a broom to sweep it, you have now learned an important lesson practically on what to do to clean the house. I think that actually Bunyan saw a woman do this and got the idea of moving it over into the spiritual realm, which is a really powerful way for pastors, preachers to get illustrations. Just be aware of things that are going on. Think about Jesus' parables, how he used everyday experiences to teach spiritual lessons. All right, so uh, I'm, I'm led to consider this passage from Matthew 12. Could someone read it? Matthew 12, 43 to 45. Very interesting because in Jesus' parable, the house is swept clean and put in order but his heart isn't converted. And so you could well imagine a Pharisee type person who by outward compliance to certain aspects of the law can feel very good about himself and he's actually in a worse condition than before because he's very arrogant spiritually, very prideful, very independent from God. Keep in mind the essence of sin is independence from God, is rebellion and, and separation from God. And so the Pharisees were sinners. They were moral sinners. They were separate from God doing it on their own. All right, so let's ask some questions about this. What does the first effort, effort to sweep the room represent? Yeah, I have, I have my own experiences with this one. I, I take my, um, my 
backpack blower into my carport and there's a certain like little cul-de-sac where the trash cans are and it just when it's done it's worse and I'm like blind I mean I, I've had this exact experience only a 21st century version of it but anyway um, what does the second part represent though this is actually important we shouldn't miss the second part what in the end happened with this room yeah it, it, that whole thing when it's sweeping up but after the water spread then what happened swept with pleasure what does that represent? Sanctification. So they have a vision for once the grace of the gospel comes, there's still work to be done. There's still cleanup to be done. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It still needs to be cleaned up. That's the heart and the effect of original sin. There's still a journey to be traveled, but it can be done. And there's cleanup. Now, we have, it's not teaching perfectionism, but just say you can actually make moral progress through faith in Christ. You can actually start doing things the way that God wants you to do. You can you know, do good works that are pleasing to him. Never perfect, but there is a cleanup that actually can occur once the gospels come into life. All right, third vignette, passion and patience. I saw moreover in my dream that the interpreter took him by the hand and had him into a little room where sat two little children, each one in his chair. The name of the eldest was passion and the name of the other patience. Passion seemed to be much discontented, but patience was very quiet. Then Christian asked, what is the reason of the discontent of passion? The interpreter answered, the governor of them would have him stay for his best things till the beginning of the next year, but he will have all now. But patience is willing to wait. Then I saw that one came to passion and brought him a bag of treasure and poured it down at his feet, the which he took up and rejoiced therein, and withal laughed patience to scorn. But I beheld but a while, and he had lavished all away, and had nothing left him but rags. Then said Christian to the interpreter, expound this matter more fully to me. So interpreter said, these two lads are figures, passion of the men of this world, and patience of the men of that which is to come. For as here thou seest, passion will have all now, this year, that is to say, in this world, so are the men of this world. They must have all their good things now. They cannot stay till next year, that is, until the next world, for their portion of good. That proverb, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, is of more authority with them than are all the divine testimonies of the good of the world to come. But as thou sawest that he had uh, quickly lavished all away and, presently, uh, and had presently left him nothing but rags, so will it be with all such men at the end of this world. Then said Christian, now I see that patience has the best wisdom and that upon many accounts. First, because he stays for the best things. And second, also because he will have the glory of his while the other has nothing but rags. Interpreter, nay, you may add another to wit, the glory of the next world will never wear out, but these are suddenly gone. Therefore, passion had not so much reason to laugh at patience because he had his good things first, as patience will have to laugh at passion because he had his best things last. For first must give place to last because last must have his time to come, but last gives place to nothing for there's not another to succeed. He, therefore, that hath his portion first must needs have a time to spend it. But he that hath his portion last must have it lastingly. Therefore, God said of Dives, the rich man, Thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Then, said Christian, I perceive it is not best to covet things that are now, but to wait for things to come. Interpreter, you say the truth. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 But though this be so, yet since things present and our fleshly appetite are so near, near neighbors to one another, and again because things to come in carnal sense are such strangers to one another, therefore it is that the first of these so suddenly fall into amity that the distance is continued, so continued between the second. Now what he's saying there at the very end is this is hard for us. Our flesh drives at us all the time to be satisfied right now. And it's especially difficult if the means of that satisfaction are surrounding us all the time. So you have to show remarkable self-control. 
So as you listen to the story of passions and patience, how does that point toward the discipline, one of the fruit of the spirit of self-control? Yeah, I think I also think of the verse, actually, if somebody could read John 12, 25 right on the sheet for us, please. So how does that kind of line up with the story of passion and patience? The man who hates his life in this world, uh, sorry, the man who loves his life in this world will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Yeah, absolutely. Or again, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross daily and follow me. Um, same teaching. Um, so it's just that, that issue of saying no to what your flesh wants, what you want right now. All right, let's go on to the fourth vignette, which is probably my, fa- my favorite. I've quoted it many times in sermons. This may be one of the most powerful images that you'll ever see of the sustaining grace of God. And it's, it's actually one of the most important images for me in pastoral ministry. I'll explain it after we read it. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where was a fire burning against a wall. And one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason of that. So he had him about to the backside of the wall, where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, of the which he did also continually cast but secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, that is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. It's a hidden, secret work by Christ through the Holy Spirit to sustain the work of grace. Now, what does that mean to you, to sustain the work of grace? That's a beautiful verse, that he's the one that started the work of grace. So, to me, the work of grace is our faith in Christ. It's our status as spiritually alive, regenerate people, right? So, we could say all of that. What this teaches me is that that is vulnerable, like a fire, it is vulnerable to being extinguished. Do you see that? Do you see vulnerability in this? Let me ask a question. In the parable, if the individual behind the wall stops feeding the fire with oil, what will happen? It will definitely go out. So translate that now to your soul and Jesus. Absolutely. Jesus has to sustain your faith in him every moment. Really. In Luke 22, it's not so much Jesus there, but it's the Father. So someone read for us Luke 22, 31 and 32. Unbelievably important. Satan wants to come after all of them. The you there is plural, not just Simon. But he's especially coming after Simon Peter that night. And Jesus' answer to the threat to Simon Peter and to all of them is what? What's Jesus' answer to that threat here in Luke 22? He's praying for them. And again, you get the same thing in Hebrews 7, 24, 25. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost or to finish saving. Think of it that way. Save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So the intercession that he does for the redeemed on earth is what in Luke 22? What, what does he pray for? That their faith won't fail. To put it in the image from the interpreter's house, the fire won't go out. So if you've been a Christian for many years, based on all this, why is it you still believe in Jesus? Because of Jesus, because he has been doing what for you all that time? praying for you. Therefore, we could see if if Jesus is praying, then the one who is truly sustaining your faith is who? The Father. Jesus is an interceder, a mediator. He's going to the Father 
because in the Luke 22 sense, it was the Father that gave you your faith to begin with. He sent the second and third persons of the Trinity to do their work, right? The Father gave you your faith, and he that began that good work in you will not let it fail. He's going to carry it to completion. But it's vulnerable. If the Trinity, if the Father, Son, and Spirit stop that energetic work toward your soul, you will apostatize. You will turn away from Christ and stop believing. But they won't. That's the whole point. So it's not like I'm teaching some kind of free will, you can lose your salvation there. Not at all. I'm not seeing lose salvation here. What I'm seeing is it's more dynamic than you thought. He needs to sustain you every minute because the fire of grace at work is being doused by the world of flesh and the devil every day. And how then does it survive because of this? Because Jesus prays and the Father sends the Spirit and Jesus sends the Spirit and there's all that. Now, there's also other means of grace like what we're doing tonight, right? Hearing good sermons, good Bible studies, having a, a mentor, you know, uh, uh, men with men, women with women, a, a role model, somebody who can hold you accountable. All those are means of grace. When you think of means of grace, you think of oil getting poured in the bottom of the fire. Means of grace. It keeps that fire going. And so therefore, you should have a sense of increasing, an increasing sense of dependence on Jesus. Not less as you go on, more. You get more and more sense that if it weren't for Jesus, I would stop believing in him. If the Father would cut off that oil, I will stop believing. So therefore, when I get up to pre uh, preach on Sunday mornings, I have this image in my mind. My job is to be a part of the flow of oil into the bottom of the fire to keep it burning for all of for me too. Does that make sense? All right. So this is a pretty powerful image. Any other comments on this? Well, experientially, yeah. I mean, they, you know, from, from a, a, a reformed theological point of view, we just answer that the fire, the true fire was never lit in them. Because here's the thing. In this image, God never lights a fire that he then later forsakes and doesn't sustain. He's not like got lots of hearths and his batting average is really good. I mean, whatever, when he f starts the fire of grace, he's going to keep it burning. He's going to keep, carry on that work of salvation. All I'm saying is you just need to have a sense of dependence on the Trinity, on the Father, Son, and Spirit for that. You're not on your own believing in Jesus. Go ahead, Mason. Absolutely. He, he keeps sustaining it. Let's keep moving. We've got five minutes left. Um, fifth vignette is the palace and the warrior. I also saw that the interpreter took him again by the hand and led him into a pleasant place where was builded a stately palace, beautiful to behold, at the sight of which Christian was greatly delighted. He saw also upon the top thereof certain persons walking who were all clothed in gold. Then said Christian, may we go thither. Then the interpreter took him and led him up towards the door of the palace. And behold, at the door stood a great company of men as desirous to go in, but dared not. There also sat a man at a little distance from the door at a side table with a book and his inkhorn before him to take the name of him that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it, being resolved to do the men that would enter whatever hurt and mischief they could. Now was Christian somewhat in amaze. At last... When every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of very stout countenance come up to the man that sat there to write, saying, Set down my name, sir. The which when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword, put a helmet on his head, and rush toward the door upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force. But the man, not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. So after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace at which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even of those that walked upon the top of the palace, saying, Come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. So he went in, was clothed with such garments as they. Then Christian smiled and said, I think verily I know the meaning of this, which is what? What does the palace represent where they have all these radiantly dressed, beautiful people? 
and then a bunch of warriors on the outside that are ready to fight to prevent anyone from entering in that palace. Yeah, the palace represents eternal life or heaven. And what is the process by which people enter into that palace? Warfare, <coughs> fighting, putting on your spiritual armor and fighting. And Jesus said very plainly, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Or more plainly, Acts 14, uh, when Paul and Barnabas went back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, they said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So you're going to have to fight to get in. There's no easy way to get into heaven. You're going to be opposed every step of the way. All right, next one I want to read without asking the question. Let's just go ahead. The man in the iron cage. So there was a man in an iron cage. I just jump into the middle of the story here. Um, and he is basically like in, in a prison. An interpreter comes and he sees him there and will pick up the story. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hand folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him to talk with the man. Then said Christian, the man, what art thou? Backslider. The man answered, I am what I was not once. What wast thou once? Said Christian. Backslider. The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor. That is somebody who claimed to be a Christian, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I was once, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thoughts that I should get thither. Christian. Well, but what art thou now? Man said, I am now a man of despair and am shut up in it as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. Christian, but how camest thou into this condition? Backslider, I left off to watch and be sober. Sober. I, led the, I la laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the world and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil, and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger, and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then said Christian to the interpreter, But is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. Then said Christian, Is there no hope? But must you be kept in this iron cage of despair? Backslider, No, none at all. Why, said Christian, The son of the blessed is very pitiful. Backslider, I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood as an unholy thing. I have done despot to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises. And now there remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. Christian, for what did you bring yourself into this condition? Backslider, for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. Christian, but canst thou not now repent and turn? Backslider, God hath denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, he himself have shut me up in this iron cage, nor can all the men in the world let me out. O eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? Then said interpreter to Christian, let this man's misery be remembered by thee and be an everlasting caution to thee. We're almost out of time, or we actually are out of time. The thing that's so interesting is this image compared to the fire burning against the wall. And I think the key is we don't actually know the absolute condition of this individual. We just know what he thinks. That's why interpreter keeps saying, ask him, ask him, ask him. We never actually get an absolute statement about him or his future or anything. So to me, it seems like the purpose of this little vignette is what? What would you say the purpose of this story is? What, I, I love it. That's true. I, what I would say is I set the fire against the wall and the man in the iron cage as kind of opposite things that keep me from different errors. And the one keeps me from despair and discouragement and from self-focus and realize the Lord is going to sustain the work in me for the rest of my life. And I know I'm going to keep believing in Jesus because he is so good to me. It keeps me humble and keeps me trusting and hopeful. But the other one keeps me from being presumptuous. Yeah, he got off the road and keeps me from saying, yeah, because of the fire in the wall thing, I can sin as much as I want, doesn't matter. No, you can't. 
because you could end up like this guy and you don't know what, what's up and what's down. You'll have no idea whether God could ever forgive you again. All right, one final thing will be done, the dream of judgment day. So he took Christian by the hand again and led him into a chamber where there was one rising out of bed. And as he put on his raiment, he shook and trembled. Then said Christian, what does this, why does this man thus tremble? The interpreter then bid him tell to Christian the reason of his so doing. So he began and said, This night, as I was in my sleep, I dreamed, and behold, the heavens grew exceeding black. Also it thundered and lightened in a most fearful wise, that it put me into an agony. So I looked up in my dream and saw the clouds rack at an unusual rate, upon which I heard a great sound of a trumpet, and I saw also a man sitting upon a cloud, attended with the thousands of heaven, and they were all in flaming fire. Also the heavens were burning flame, and I heard a voice saying, Arise, ye dead, and come to judgment. And with that the rocks rent, and the graves opened, and the dead that were therein came forth. Some of them were exceeding glad, and looked upward, and some sought to hide themselves under the mountains. Then I saw the man that sat upon the cloud open the book and bid the world draw near. Yet there was, by reason of a fierce flame which issued out and came from before him, a convenient distance betwixt him and them, as betwixt the judge and the prisoners at the bar. I heard it also proclaimed to them that attended on the man that sat on the cloud, gather together the tares, the chaff, the stubble, and cast them into the burning lake. And with that the bottomless pit opened, just whereabout I stood, out of the mouth of which there came in an abundant manner smoke and coals of fire with hideous noises. It was also said to the same persons, gather my wheat into the garner. And with that I saw the many catched up and carried away into the clouds, but I was left behind. I, I also sought to hide myself, but I could not. For the man that sat upon the cloud still kept his eye upon me, my sins also came into my mind, and my conscience did accuse me on every side. Upon this, I awakened from my sleep. Christian, but what is it that made you so afraid of this sight? Man, why, I thought that the day of judgment was come and that I was not ready for it. But this frightened me most, that the angels gathered up several, but they left me behind. Also, the pit of hell opened her mouth just where I stood. My conscience, too, afflicted me. And as I thought, the judge had always his eye upon me, showing indignation in his countenance. So that's the seventh of the vignettes. It's a picture, a sense of Judgment Day and what that will be like. And all of it flows basically from Scripture. Then Christian left the interpreter's house and resumed his journey. Interpreter said to Christian, Hast thou considered all these things? Yes, said Christian. And they put me, and I love this, in hope and fear. It's just a good combination. You know, there's an appropriate fear and there's an appropriate hope, and they just, both of them are necessary in the Christian life. Well, said interpreter, keep all these things so in thy mind, and they may be as a goad in thy sides to prick thee forward in the way thou must go. Then Christian began to gird up his loins and to address himself to his journey. Then said interpreter, the comforter always be with thee, good Christian, to guide thee in the way that leads to the city. So Christian went on his way singing, Here I have seen things rare and profitable, things pleasant, dreadful, things to make me stable in what I have begun to take in hand. Then let me think on them and understand. Wherefore they showed me uh, were, and let me thank, be thankful, O good interpreter, to thee. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.